All right. Well, um, yeah, thank you for joining us and uh, just really blessed uh, to be worshiping together here at All Nations. Uh, yeah, guys, if I were to ask you, what is the most memorable meal you guys have ever had? Uh, how would you respond? Not the best meal. Doesn't have to be like the, the, the highest price or like the best food you've ever, and maybe the best meal you've ever had is the most memorable. Um, but some, something that comes to mind, a meal that you will never forget. Uh, for me, that meal is the first time I had Brazilian barbecue. Brazilian, and the cool thing was, I was in Brazil. I was in Brazil as a college sophomore on a mission trip. And maybe it's because uh, I was so tired and so hungry. You know, when you're hungry and tired, everything tastes better. Um, but man, that first time I had steak in Brazil, Brazilian barbecue, it was amazing. Uh, steak never tasted so good. That steak and flavor still haunts me to this day. I'm like chasing it and I can't find it. Uh, the close second, the close second most memorable meal I ever had was with my wife, Alice on a beach in Thailand. A couple years ago, we took a vacation to Korea and Thailand, and then I think it was like the first day there, we're like, hey, it's a beautiful day, the sun is shining, let's go to the beach and eat on the beach. So we set up, and um, before the food even came, uh, I found a way to somehow get hot chili flakes in her eye, and I ruined the meal. She was so mad at me. I think she I cussed at me under her breath. Um, What happened was I was like trying to close a container of chili flakes, and then the thing popped open. All the flakes went up into the air, and then if you've ever been by the beach, there's a lot of wind, and she's sitting downwind. So they went directly into her eye. She couldn't eat the meal. She she was mad at me, and but like it was really tough because I didn't do it on purpose, so she couldn't be that angry at me, but she was still really angry at me. Uh, and I ruined our first meal on a beautiful beach in Thailand. Um, now, if I were to ask the disciples, the followers of Jesus, 12 disciples, what was your most memorable meal? Peter, James, Andrew, John, what's the most memorable meal you guys have ever had? I think they would surely tell, they would tell us that it was the Last Supper. It was the Last Supper where they shared the Passover meal with their Lord Jesus. They will tell us that that meal forever changed their lives. Because after that meal, Jesus would go to the Garden of Gethsemane. After that meal, he would be betrayed. He'd be put on trial. He would be beaten and crucified on a cross. That was the last meal they had with Jesus before he went to the cross. Now, I found that many of us may be familiar with the Last Supper, but we actually haven't studied it with much depth. We simply think of communion. So we know, you know, right now, communion and and all the elements are set up before us. And so when we think of the Last Supper, we're like, okay, that's Jesus, his 12 disciples. I've seen the painting. And then we just immediately go to communion. That's not wrong, but there's more to it. And today I hope to show you how significant, how rich, how powerful it was for the disciples. And I hope to connect that for us as well, how significant it continues to be for us, that the Lord's table, that the Lord's supper isn't just some historical past event. It's something that continues to change our lives, to draw us closer to Jesus. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to our text, Matthew chapter 14, verses 12 to 25. That's our text and our passage. Uh, We are in the last days of Jesus's earthly life. uh, And yeah, this is where Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper. But let's begin with verse 12. May God bless the reading of his holy and infallible word. 
And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, he, uh, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is sitting with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. Today in our passage, as we work our way through the text, I want us to um, just identify kind of like three main parts uh, for this message. First, we're going to look at the Passover feast. Second, we're going to look at the Lord of the feast. Hint, hint, it's Jesus. And finally, we're going to look at the invitation to the feast. So it's all about this Passover feast. First, we're going to learn more about the Passover feast, what it is. Second, the Lord of the feast. And finally, the invitation to the feast. Now, we're all familiar with ceremonies and rituals in life. If you go to someone's birthday dinner, there are typical elements. And in order to those elements, what's the first thing you do? You eat. Second, then you cut the cake, if there's a cake, and then finally, you open the presents. That's the order. If the birthday boy or birthday girl says, hey, we're going to start with the presents, you'll kind of probably judge them and be like, you're a bit of a brat. You're a bit of a brat. Um, I remember one time my, my wife gave me a birthday present, and I knew what it was. It was exactly what I wanted, and I was really excited. And so as she's bringing it to me, I had my hands out towards the present. And then I see her, and she looks at me, and I go, oh, no, I need to thank you first. So my hands were like, uh, uh. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that should have been the order. I should have thanked and hugged my wife and then went to the present. But I went to the present first and almost ruined that day. All right, husband of the year, right here. Chili peppers in my wife's eyes. Now loving the present, the gift, not the giver. Uh, but, but we know the order of how things should be. If you've gone to a Christian wedding, you know the order to expect. First, there's the processional. The groomsmen walk in, then the bridesmaids, and then the entrance of the bride. Everyone stands. Then there's the message. My sermons for weddings are eight minutes, guys, eight minutes, so book me when you can. Um, the exchange of vows and rings. After that, the, the pastor pronounces them husband and wife, and then there's the kiss that's so romantic or so awkward, mostly awkward. And then the wedding party marches out in celebration. That's the order. Right? That's, the, that's what we expect. That's what we are familiar with in our culture. If a ceremony started out with a kiss, 
That'd just be weird, right? That would just be puzzling. We'd say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Well, as I study this passage, I realized that in order for us to fully understand the Lord's table, the Last Supper, we need to understand the Passover. We really need to understand the Passover. And there's two things I want us to learn about the Passover. First, what is its meaning? Where did it come from, right? What's the meaning of it? And second, how did the Jews observe the Passover meal? You see, we haven't grown up observing the Passover meal. We know birthday meals, we know weddings, and, and all sorts of like cultural rituals, but we are completely unfamiliar with the Jewish culture and ritual of the Passover meal. I want us to learn about that. We know some things about the Passover from the book of Exodus. If you've ever read it or you watched the Prince of Egypt, uh, but most of us don't really know much about that Passover meal and the ritual uh, that the Jewish people practiced. Now, for the Jewish uh, people, for the Hebrews, the Passover was the defining moment for their nation's history. If you go back and you read the story of Exodus, the Hebrews had been enslaved to the Egyptians for 400 years. 400 years, and day after day, they cried out to God for deliverance and freedom. Day after day, they said, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Yahweh, would you please deliver us? Have mercy on us. Remember us. God heard their cries, and finally, he would send them a deliverer. His name was Moses. And through Moses, he sent a series of plagues over Egypt to break the will of Pharaoh and his hardened heart. And after every plague, Pharaoh's heart would continue to be hardened, and he would not let God's people go. Now, I want us to note one important thing about these plagues. The first nine plagues in these plagues, God actually separated. He protected Israel from the Egyptians, okay? All the Israelites in Egypt, they lived and they settled in this land called Goshen, in this land called Goshen. And that's because Joseph, in the story, in the book of Genesis, Joseph, when his family came down from the land of Canaan because of a famine, he actually gave his family the land of Goshen. So that's where all the Hebrews, that's where Joseph's family, all the Hebrews, they just kind of settled in there, and that was their region. So when these first nine plagues would come, the ninth plague was the plague of darkness. Three days, Egypt was overcast with complete darkness, but you know what happened in Goshen? There was light. And the other plagues were the, the Nile and the waters in Egypt would turn into blood. The waters of Goshen were clean. When flies and locusts would consume, right, consume Egypt. Goshen was safe. Their crops were safe. When the livestock were struck in and when the livestock died in Egypt, the livestock of the Hebrews were safe. God divided and he separated and he protected his people from the plagues. But then God sent a final plague, the 10th plague that would break Pharaoh's will and break his heart. It was the plague of the firstborn where the angel of death would strike every household in Egypt. Now, what's different about this 10th plague was not only its level of devastation, but that this plague would affect everyone. It would affect the Egyptians. It would affect the Jews, okay? There was no way around it. You couldn't say, I'm a Jew, so my, my firstborn's not gonna die. It, it, it wasn't like that. God told Israel there was one way to avoid this plague. There was one way to be spared, and you had to slay a lamb, a lamb without blemish. And you had to take its blood and you had to paint it on the doorposts of your house. And for those who obeyed, for those who did this, the angel of death passed over, passed over your household and you were saved. 
Your child's life was spared. And that's why this event is called the Passover. Because the angel of death passed over the houses with the blood of a lamb painted on their doorposts. You were saved on the basis, not of your race, not on the basis of your ethnicity or your good works. You were saved on the basis of a sacrificial lamb. That lamb for the families was the substitute for your child. All throughout Egypt and in the land of Goshen, on the night of the Passover, there was either a dead child or a dead lamb. This was a monumental event, and it led to the liberation of Israel. Because of the 10th plague, the Pharaoh finally said, leave. Get out of here. Get out of my sight. And you know actually what's interesting? He said, but on your way out, bless me. On your way out, bless me. Very incredible. But, it's big, but, but Pharaoh had recognized that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was powerful. More powerful than Ra. More powerful than the whole pantheon of Egyptian gods. Ra's the only God I know off the top of my head. right? And he's like, on your way out, bless me. On your way out, bless me. And in Exodus 12, chapter 14, God commanded his people, this day shall be for you, the Passover, uh, shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast, and Israel did. For about a, uh, about a thousand years separates Moses from Jesus, and for a thousand years, all of the households of Israel, they celebrated the Passover. It was their, like, 4th of July, right? It was their great memorial day. So how did the Jews keep this Passover feast? Was it kind of vague and, like, do your own thing? It was not, okay? There were actually specific rules. There were commandments in the Torah and commandments in their other oral written laws on how to observe the Passover, the first thing is this. The Passover meal had to be eaten within the walls of Jerusalem, within the walls of the city of David. And that's why the population in Jerusalem would swell during Passover. All the Jews had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God for the Passover. There's a Jewish historian uh, named, by the name of Josephus. And in the um, right around like 60, like in the 60s and 70s, he said that about 200,000 lambs were sacrificed during Passover. 200,000 lambs. That, that, that's a lot. The temple was busy. He estimated that Jerusalem uh, would swell to about 2.5 million people during the time of Passover. Now, certain uh, commentators are like, oh, I think Josephus like, exaggerates. And even if he does exaggerate, we get the point. How big a deal this was for the nation of Israel how so many families, so many people would gather for this annual monumental event. Um, so after, and so what they would do is take their lambs and they would take it to the temple, okay? They wouldn't just cook it at home, at a backyard barbecue or big green egg or anything like that. They would take their lambs, one of the 200,000, they would go to the temple and it would be sacrificed there. One of the Levites would take the lamb, put it on the altar for burnt offering sacrifice it there, roast it there, and then the families would take it home, take it back to their meeting place in Jerusalem to observe the Passover feast. Not only was the Passover like dedicated to be eaten in Jerusalem, the meal itself had an order to it. There's a liturgy. 
You know, even in our worship service, we have a liturgy. We don't come here and just kind of do a free-for-all for Jesus. We start with a reading of God's word as a call to worship, singing, confession of sin, assurance of pardon, a song of renewal. All of There's an order to our service. There is an order to this meal. There's a liturgy there. It always took place at night, just like the meal did during the Exodus. And this liturgy had four parts. And here's the interesting thing. After each part of the meal, after each of the four movements, all the participants would drink a cup of wine. How many cups is that then? Four cups, right? Some of you may be thinking, dang, that is a lot of wine. Others may be thinking, that's my kind of meal. That's my kind of meal, right? Um, People speculate maybe the wine was watered down or maybe the cups were nice and small. Probably not as small as our communion cups. That's not even a cup. Um, That's a thimble. Um, But yeah, there's different areas. Or you could think, oh man, they just had really high tolerance. Um, We'll reserve our speculation and judgments for now. But I just want us to get the flow. There's four parts to this meal, okay? Um, And after each part, they would drink a cup of wine. Tim Keller, he notes that the four cups of wine, they represented the four promises made by God in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 7. This is before the plagues had come. This is while the people are crying out for deliverance. And God, before he acts, he makes them a promise. Right? Before he sends the plagues, he gives them his word. And this is what he says. He says, they Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Do you hear the promises of God to his Hebrews, his people right now? They were for rescue from Egypt. They were for freedom from slavery. They were for redemption by God's divine power. You see, in that passage, he's clearly saying, I am going to free you, and it's going to be supernatural. It's going to be absolutely extraordinary so that you won't give Pharaoh credit, that you won't give Moses credit. You will give me credit because only God alone will be able to perform these acts and wonders. There will be a supernatural aspect to their redemption. And the last promise is a renewed relationship with God. I will be your God, you will be my people. So there'll be rescue, there'll be freedom, there'll be uh, supernatural redemption, and there'll be renewal in relationship. Each Passover meal, four cups, to represent the four promises and four parts and movements to lead them through it. So to begin the meal, this is what would happen. I'm just gonna walk you through a Passover meal because it's so foreign to us. To begin the meal, the head of the family would give a blessing, a prayer. And then they would sing these psalms called the Hallel Psalms. You can find them in your Bibles, Psalms chapter 113 to 118. And after this introduction, everyone, cheers, right? First cup of wine goes down. Next, second part of the meal, the feast. One of the children would ask the father or the head of the dinner, Father, why this night? What about it is so special? What distinguished it from all other nights? And then the family head would respond. And he would retell the story of Israel's redemption. He would retell the story of the great exodus. It was a sermon, right? The head of the family would preach a, a sermon before they ate the meal. And in response, 
Okay? There was actually this, this statement. This was rehearsed and recited in every household. So may the Lord our God and the God of our fathers cause us to enjoy the feasts that come in peace. And we shall thank you with a new song for our redemption. Okay? That's what all the Israelites, that's what all the Hebrews would recite after the story of the Exodus was preached. Thank you with a new song for our redemption. And after that, second cup of wine goes down. All the participants drink and celebrate. Then part three, finally, they would begin the feasting. The meal has begun, but the actual feasting begins in uh, part three. The family head would actually take the unleavened bread and he would break it and give it to all of the family members there. They ate it with bitter herbs, stewed fruit, and the roasted lamb according to the meal in Exodus 12. And at the end of the meal, after they've eaten the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, the stewed fruit, and the roasted lamb, they would drink drink the third cup of wine. They would bless it, and they would drink. And finally, to close it all off, it's not dessert, they would end the evening with the singing of Psalms, Psalms 116 to 118. And after thanking God and praising him, they would drink that fourth cup of wine. That's the Passover feast. That's the Passover feast. And this is what the disciples were expecting. They were in Jerusalem. And they were like, okay, we are here. We are faithful, God-fearing Jews. We are here to celebrate the Passover. This is Jesus having a meal, this meal, this feast with his disciples. And we see in the beginning of our passage, he gives specific instructions to two of his disciples on how to, how to do all the setup, where to find the man by the well, and tell him to go to this, the, that master of the house. Tell him that the, the teacher will be coming. That the disciples and the teacher will be having their meal there. And he says, go and make all the preparations. And everything that Jesus commands, everything that he says, it comes true. It's according to his word. And here in our passage, we actually kind of dive into the Passover feast. But I want to tell you, the first two parts of the Passover have actually already taken place. They've already taken place. We go from like, the room is there, and then there's actually these woes. We're going to talk about the woe at the end. Uh, but then Jesus dives right into it. But I want to tell us, the first two parts have taken place. The initial blessing, the singing of the hymns, the reminder, and the sermon on the Exodus. Two cups of wine have already been drunk. The meal has begun, and the third movement is about to begin. And how does that begin? Normally with the breaking of the unleavened bread and the giving out to all of the people. This is what the disciples were expecting. They've grown up their entire lives observing the Passover in this way. But Jesus changes the script. He does something very different. When it's time to introduce the unleavened bread and begin the real eating, Jesus says, take it. This is my body. This must have caught the disciples off guard. It must have totally confused them. What Jesus was supposed to say was actually, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate of the wilderness. That is the story. You see, that's the standard introduction of the unleavened bread. You see, the Jews didn't eat unleavened bread because they thought it tasted better or out of preference. Do you know why they ate unleavened bread in the story of the Exodus? It's because they were eating in haste. They were trying to run and flee from Pharaoh and Egypt. They were in the middle, in the midst of their bondage. They didn't have the luxury 
to let the yeast work through the dough and let that dough rise. No, they were eating this flat, unleavened bread baked in haste. And it was to remind them of their affliction. It was the bread of their affliction. But instead of the standard introduction, Jesus says, this is my body. We have to ask why. Why would he do this? Why would he say this and what does he mean? To quote Tim Keller one last time, he says this, Jesus is saying, this is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my suffering because I am going to lead the ultimate exodus and bring you out of the ultimate deliverance from bondage. You see the Hebrews, they were delivered from bondage under who? Pharaoh. Under an earthly bondage in Egypt. But brothers and sisters, what Jesus is about to do through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, he delivers us from a greater foe than Pharaoh. He delivers us from being sons and daughters of Satan, from a greater enemy than physical death or physical slavery. He delivers us from slavery to sin and unrighteousness. This is the work of Christ. And this is why Jesus says, this is the bread of my affliction, not yours. Not your affliction, not your shame. It will be mine. But brothers and sisters, what we need to see is the love of Christ. When Jesus says, this is my body, he's not just talking about physical body. You see, in the Greek, there are two words for body. There's sarks and there's soma, okay? Sarks means flesh, like physical flesh. Soma means your entire body, your entire self. Which do you think Mark used? Mark chose soma. Jesus saying, this is my soma. Not just physical flesh, but my body, my entire self given for you. That's Mark's point, that Jesus has given all of himself to redeem us, to liberate us, to deliver us. He's given all of himself for his disciples. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not just the presider over the feast. He's not just the master of the feast. He himself is the feast. He is the feast. He's saying, come, eat of me. Come and receive me. Do you know what else is fascinating about this meal? Um, not one of the gospels, and you can find this story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay? Not one of the gospels mentions the lamb being eaten. There's no mention of it. And um, they only mention the bread and the wine. And that's weird because in Exodus, you know, the, the, the bitter herbs, the, the, the bread, those things are kind of like, you know, side and secondary to the lamb. The lamb is slain. The blood of the lamb is painted over the door. They don't put dough over the doorpost. They put the lamb's blood there. And we have to ask, why, why didn't any of the gospel writers mention the Passover lamb? Is it because they went vegan, right? And they're like, hey, let's be, you know, animal conscious? No, I, I, I don't think that's the case. I don't think it's because there wasn't a lamb there. I believe the gospel writers are making a theological point to us, to all of the readers, that the centerpiece of the Passover meal is no longer the roasted lamb that mimics the Exodus 12 lamb. No longer is it about this lamb looking back to Exodus and Moses and Egypt and the Hebrews, no. Now it's, it's about Jesus. The focus is on Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, slain 
for the sins of the world. There's a move, there's a theological move that the gospel writers want us to pick up on. I mean, this was the phrase John the Baptist used when he saw Jesus passing by. He said, behold, the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. In fact, it's the Passover lamb in Exodus that was looking forward to Jesus. Okay. Jesus is the suffering servant and he fulfills Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53, verse seven. This is what Isaiah says about the coming Messiah, about the savior, the ultimate deliverer of God's people. He says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. We're gonna even see greater fulfillment in this passage when Jesus stands before trial. And he does not open his mouth before his false accusers. After Jesus takes this bread and gives it to his disciples, he takes the cup. And it's time for the third cup of wine to be drunk. I know for us, we imagine Jesus saying these statements like back to back. Because when we take communion in the Lord's table, I do the bread and then I do the wine. It's kind of like simultaneous. But I actually believe that that's not what happened for the disciples. I think they took the bread, they had the entire meal, and at the end of that physical meal, they're about to top it off with the third cup. And what he says, he changes the script again, and it's powerful. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What is Jesus doing here? I mean, Jesus, why don't you just follow the normal template? This is literally the way it's been done for a thousand years. What are you saying and what are you doing? Well, Jesus is taking them back to the covenant. He's taking them back to remember what it means to have a relationship with God. And in the Old Testament, blood and sacrifices were made to seal covenants. And in a similar way, Right? When you get married, what is the sign and seal of your marriage covenant? It's the ring. And I say, with this ring, I be wed. And you put that ring on the other person's finger. Well, for the Jews, after they make a commitment, after they make a covenant and promises to God, they would seal that covenant with blood. When Israel made a covenant with God to keep his law, Moses sprinkled blood on the people to seal their promise. If you go back to the story of the Ten Commandments, when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, he comes down before the people and he reads the law. He reads the Ten Commandments and then after that, there's a, there's a whole litany of additional laws and then Moses asks, people of Israel, what will you do? Who will you follow? Who will you obey? And they all respond, we will obey the Lord all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses said, okay, we're gonna ink it down. We're gonna lock it down with blood. He takes, a, he takes a bull, sacrifices it. Half of the blood, he pours it on the altar. And the other half, you know what he does? He throws it on the people. He sprinkles the blood on the people. And that's a sign. That's a sign that they are gonna keep this, this promise to God. Otherwise, blood is on their hands. Death is what they deserve if they break this promise. What Jesus is telling us is that his promise to deliver us from sin, 
his promise to liberate us from sin, to redeem us as his people, his promise to return again is sealed by his blood. That's what he's saying. I promise I will save you. I promise I will forgive you. I promise I will wash you clean. I promise by my own blood. This is the sign. Truly I say to you, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood. Then Jesus jumps off the script one last time. Okay, I mean, he just can't stick to the script. He, but he is the Lord of the feast. He is the Lord of the feast. The fourth cup comes. You should be just, come on, Jesus, quick prayer. Let's sing a couple songs and let's get out of here, right? It's supposed to end by midnight, this meal. This is a long meal. The fourth cup comes. It's time for us to, to drink it and end the evening. Jesus refuses it. He won't drink it. And disciples had to ask, why? Why wouldn't you drink the fourth cup? It's, the, the Passover's not done if you don't drink the fourth cup. Well, this fourth cup is a sign of, of renewal and consummation, ultimate consummation with God as his people in his kingdom. And he says, this cup is reserved for when he ushers in the kingdom of God in full. When he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, that's when he will take this final cup. So when will he do it? He'll do it at the end. He'll do it at that great heavenly banquet that we see in Revelation 19. He will drink this final cup of consummation when Satan is vanquished in full, when Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. He will drink that final cup when sin and death are destroyed, not just defeated through the cross and resurrection, but when they are destroyed and no more a plague, no more a pestilence to God's people, when men, women, and children will be gathered from every tribe and tongue to worship the Lamb in that great city of Zion. That's when Jesus will drink the fourth cup. And Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, okay, will Jesus drink this cup? It's not an if, it's a when. We have this promise that Jesus declares. He will drink this cup only in the consummation, only at the end. Brothers and sisters, this is the promise of Christ. Consider this entire meal. Consider all that Jesus has said and done to his, for his disciples and what he said for us. He gave all of himself to you as his body hung on the cross. He sealed that promise to forgive you, to redeem you as he shed his blood and made atonement for our sins. And he promises to return for us and bring us into his everlasting kingdom. This is the gospel. Brothers and sisters, do you believe? Do you believe that the blood of Jesus is able to wash away all your sins? Do you believe that Jesus has loved you to the point of death and given all of himself for you? Because we must do more than study this feast. We must do more than just hear the story of the Lord's Supper. What Jesus wants us to do is respond to the invitation to the feast. And this is the closing part of this message. See, what does Jesus say to his disciples? You see, if you kind of go back and study, there, there, there's, I mean, besides telling the two guys to go and like find the, the servant with the water and prep the house and everything like that, um, 
there's just one main command in this passage. And he says, take it. Take my body. Don't just look at the bread. Don't just smell it. Don't just hold it. Don't just admire it. But Jesus says, take. Take my body. It is for you. Eat it. Receive it. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to respond to God in faith. This is what it means to respond to the invitation, is to take hold of the promise and person of Christ. To see him, to hear him, and not just admire, but believe. Do you believe in what Jesus is saying to you? Do you believe in what he offers to you? If so, take it. I had a friend who um, was uh, trying to diet, and uh, he was not good at dieting. He loved food, and he was not good at dieting. And uh, I, was, I, was, I was hanging out with him one day, and he was like watching um, on YouTube people eat. And I was like, what are you doing? Why, what joy do you get from watching people eat food? And he's like, man, I'm so hungry, and I don't know. This just makes me feel better, right? Watching these people eat these awesome meals, and I just like feel like I can tell myself that I'm eating with them, right? And I just laughed and I pitied him in his diet. I don't think his diet really worked that well. But friends, it's a simple point. For us to be nourished by food, for us to be strengthened by food, for us to be blessed by food, we can't just look at it and then smell it and, and hold it and try to admire it or think about it. You have to take it. You have to eat it. You have to ingest it. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell us. That if you want to receive the benefits from Christ, the benefits and blessings that flow from Calvary's cross, you must receive him. You must take him. And what Jesus offers us in the sacrament, what he offers us in his table, is he wants us to have a physical experience of the spiritual reality. So just because you eat this little flat piece of bread and thimble of juice doesn't mean you're gonna like get holier and experience Jesus. No, no, no. It's a physical experience of a spiritual reality. That's what a sacrament is. It's an outward expression of an inward reality. But Jesus has given this to us as a gift. Do this in remembrance of me. As you eat the bread, remember Jesus and his complete sacrifice for you. As you drink the cup, remember Jesus' promise that he is able, he alone is able to wash you clean of all of your sins and he will return for us in victory. I want to close with a word on those who are invited to the feast. I think if we think of like big parties, right, big weddings, big events, and maybe you see them on Instagram and you're like, oh, that looks awesome. I didn't get invited. Thanks. Right? We covet that. question is, who gets invited to the great feast of Jesus? And there's something very important that we have to see as we look at the Lord's Supper. I want us to see what happens before and what happens after. Before Jesus lovingly, graciously says, take my body, drink my blood. Before he offers himself so lovingly and graciously to his disciples. You know what he's surrounded by? On both ends of this story, it's betrayal. It's betrayal. What does he say before they eat? He says, one of you will betray me. 
And all the disciples get scared. They get worried. Is it, is it gonna be me? Is it going to be me? He says, one of you will betray me. It's ominous before this meal even begins. He's like, there are traitors among us. I'm dining, right? One of you that dips his bread in the bowl with me. We are having table fellowship together and you're gonna betray me. But still, take it. My body's for you. Drink it. I'm gonna shed my blood for you. Do you know what happens after the supper? Like literally hours after the supper, Judas goes off to, to betray his Lord, 30 pieces of silver. Jesus then goes to the garden of Gethsemane and he takes Peter, James, and John. He says, will you pray with me for just an hour? My heart is heavy. My heart is filled with grief and sorrow. Will you pray with me? You know what these three disciples did? Apostles, they fall asleep. They fail him. They let him down, and he wakes them up one time. He's like, could you not stay awake for one hour? Stay awake, watch, and pray. And he goes, and he comes back, and they fall asleep one more time. And granted, it's like after midnight by this point. Right? They fail him. After Jesus is arrested, after Jesus is arrested, Mark writes some of the most tragic words in the Bible. This is what Mark writes in verse 50 of this same chapter. See, the same night, all of them... And they all left him and fled. They all left him and fled. You see, Jesus comes back from Gethsemane. Judas kisses him. The Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the high priest, they arrest him. Peter pulls out a sword, cuts off an ear, and then Jesus says, hey, we're not like that. Put that away. And he's arrested. And all of his disciples, I mean, they just had the Passover feast with him. They all left him and fled. What does that tell us? It tells us it's not the worthy that Jesus is invited to the feast. It's the unworthy. This table of intimacy, this renewal, this forgiveness, this love. Jesus invited cowards to that table. He, he invited failures to that table. People who would betray him, who would abandon him, people who would be unfaithful to him. He invited Peter to that feast. He offered all of himself to Peter, knowing that Peter would deny him three times in the courtyard. And he didn't hesitate. He didn't hedge his bets. He didn't say, oh, I'm just gonna give you a secondary blessing. No, he gave all of himself to Peter. Brothers and sisters, if he invited such men to his feast and his table, would he not invite you? Would he not include you? If you're here today and you're like, oh, I just don't know if, I don't know if Jesus loves me. I don't know if Jesus likes me or would invite me in to be one of his disciples, to, to be part of his family? Would I get a seat at that table? The answer is yes. And it's not because you have done something good, not because you've done something great, or it's not because you're disqualified for your poor performance and your bad works. It's because the gospel of Jesus is a gospel of grace. He calls unqualified, unworthy 
people. He can invite you. I believe he is inviting you. Do you hear that? See, we're about to take communion right now. And um, I'm gonna invite you forward to come and receive the elements. And some of you who are Christian are going to hesitate. And you're gonna sit in your chairs. And when I say, reflect upon the gospel, search your heart, what you are going to do is evaluate your performance. And some of you are gonna think, man, I haven't read the Bible in days, weeks, or months, <laughs> right? Can I take communion? Man, the things that I have been doing in my privacy, oh God, I mean, I'm so ashamed. If anyone knew, I'd get kicked out of this room things I'm doing with my boyfriend, girlfriend, or, or the type of, 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 of sins that I'm committing at work or at school, whatever it might be. And, and what we do when we get invited to the table, but before we do, we search our hearts, we, we gauge our performance. And I've been there, guys. There have been weeks, there have been times when the preacher will invite us forward and I stay in my seat because I think, man, this season, this week, this day, I'm just too bad. I'm too guilty. I'm too unworthy. And so it's not because I don't believe in Jesus. It's because I no longer believe in myself. So I don't, don't come forward. Brothers and sisters, I want to spare you from that. That is not gospel-centered Christianity. Your sin should not keep you from the table. Your sin should press you towards the table. If you are here today and you're searching your and you're reflecting upon your relationship to Jesus and all you see is your failure, your sin, your denial, your betrayal, what that needs to do, that, what that is, that's the Holy Spirit pressing you to the table, saying you can't save yourself. You can't fix yourself or your family. You cannot perfect yourself. You can't atone for your own sins. You need a savior. That's the work of the Spirit. Don't misinterpret that and think, man, next month, I'm gonna come back better. I'm gonna come back ready. I'm gonna sin less, obey more, and take the table with a clean conscience. That's not the gospel, brothers and sisters. This table is for sinners who confess their sin and receive Jesus in his body and his blood as their only hope as their only savior, would you believe? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to be our ultimate deliverer. We thank you for the word. That truly is one word, authoritative word from you, spoken and given to us through the prophets, through the apostles, your people. We thank you that it is unified and that it all testifies to Christ. Father, I pray that today we will do more than hear about Jesus, that we will do more than just think about Jesus. Help us to receive Jesus in faith. Help us to receive him in our hearts, into our lives, to be Lord and Savior, and for those of us who might be struggling with sin and faith, God, would you give us help by your Holy Spirit? Help us, Lord, to surrender. Help us to believe. Help us to receive your grace. 
Lord, we thank you for this table, for all that it represents. May it bring us closer to you and give us a deeper experience of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.